Welcome back to the Sound Environment. Um, you're here with Kat and Jason. Jason, great to have you back in the studio after, you know, missing you for a whole week. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be back here, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, especially as I know you've brought some news. What's been going on? Yeah, the uh, crew of the Kimberley Quest, um, which is a broom boat. Uh, they were up at the Roe River on their last trip of the season. And uh, they went into the Roe River with a big group of tourists and found a big dead bloated crocodile with a gill net wrapped around it. Oh, no. Yeah, they filmed it. So they brought the footage back and uh, gave it to media. And um, it sparked a bit of debate about whether we should remove gill nets from the North Kimberley, considering the next year they will become the North Kimberley Marine Park. So now is the, the sort of time to make these kind of changes yeah we, i mean you think it would make sense because it sounds like i mean there's a lot of unintended bycatch coming through those gill nets yeah gill nets are often described as walls of death because they <laughs> indiscriminately kill anything that swims into them really it, it walls of death is a bit, little bit more um <laughs> descriptive than a bit of unintended bycatch <laughs> yeah look there's documented evidence from all over the world about uh what gill nets catch and what they kill mm-hmm. so it's not that's not new, new news at all. Um, the thing is, the the Kimberley tourism, coastal tourism industry is worth about $250 million a year. So it's, it's quite big business. That's huge. And it's going to get bigger, the way it's going. And these gill nets impact upon that industry because in two ways, basically. Firstly, the tourists are absolutely shocked when they see big dead animals. Just it's not, floating there. In the- yeah, it's not just crocodiles. It's also sawfish and occasionally turtles and things like that and fish. So they, they, it ruins their pristine wilderness experience, basically. They go home and tell all their friends, oh, my God, we saw all these dead animals in the pristine wilderness of the Kimberley. <laughs> <laughs> and the second way it impacts it is that they go in there with the hope of catching one barramundi to say they've caught a barramundi. Um, that is, is the Kimberley experience. Yeah, it's often, often the goal. Um, normally that's catch and release. And uh, they go into these creeks and they've just been netted out. So, so of course, they can't catch any barramundi, which sort of ruins the wilderness experience as well. Mm. Yeah, so some people are saying, oh, we need, we need the gillnets there to supply Western Australia with fresh fish. I but, mean, I like fresh fish. That's, oh, that sounds like a reasonable argument. That is a very reasonable argument. But the, the, the thing is that uh, the gillnets actually catch a very, very tiny proportion of the fish we eat barramundi and salmon i'm talking about you're talking about five percent oh that's really tiny yeah nearly all of it is grown on aquaculture farms i had no idea that so much of it came from aquaculture which is interesting in itself. yeah like cohen bay for example is a huge barramundi farm there mm-hmm. and it's going from strength to strength to strength and they're improving the diet improving the quality of the fillets and uh the the, the quality of the product from a from a, bar- a barramundi farm is much much greater than a gillnet because they literally take the fish out of a out of a sea cage and put it straight into ice so it's instantly chilled down and kept in optimum conditions right mm. through to market no market whereas in a gillnet you're way up in the kimberley um and the fish get caught drowned die they might sit in a in the hot kimberley water yeah. for hours you know slowly rotting before they're actually taken out and and, and processed. Kind of disgusting, really, when we put it that way. Yeah, and then... There's your lovely fish <laughs> sitting around. Yeah, and then they've got to transport them all the way back to Darwin, all back to Broome, and, or Derby, and process them and send them off to market. So, you know, the aquaculture product is a lot fresher product. There's no doubt about mm. that. And there are other ways of harvesting wild fish, like, um, I don't know what they call it, pollen line or... Yeah, well, also in the Kimberley, we've got the uh, fish trap industry, which is offshore. 
and they catch the big red emperors and the big reef fish. And that is far, far less bycatch because it's basically a big steel cage, cage with baits in it. And it allows all the small fish to swim out and the entrance is only so big, so only certain things can get in there. So, yeah, and there's far, far less bycatch than, than gill nets because gill nets are indiscriminate. It's very, very hard to manage what, what swims into a gill net. Mm. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, what's the upshot of all this? Um, gill nets, walls of death. Can we... <laughs> perhaps well, we should keep our, the walls of death away? Well, what we saw back in 2012 was the state government buy out the two gill net licences from Murdoch Bay because they decided that recreational fishing and conservation in the bay was more important than uh, catching a few salmon out there. And I heard that there was almost an immediate effect. People were um, saw better fishing pretty soon after that. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. It also coincided with good, previous good wet season as well, which certainly helps. Ah. <laughs> yeah. But in relation to the North Kimberley, you've only got four gillnet licences in the whole of the North Kimberley. Um, so relatively easy to buy them out. It wouldn't cost that much money. You're only talking about a $300,000 a year turnover as compared to $250 million for the tourism industry. It's not a huge amount of money to get rid of walls of death. It's true. It's true. (laughs) And you know what? There's plenty of work for those guys to carry on working on the ocean. They can go and work on big barramundi farms. There's a massive prawn farm being built near the NTWA border. Um, and they, they could also get a job in a tour boat because <laughs> they're all qualified to do that. So mm-hmm. there's plenty of work there, yeah. And I, I, I consider that fishery to be a bit unnecessary. Um, I think we're all better off allowing those fish to breed up and uh, benefit the tourism industry instead. I think you could be right. So if we want to, um, I don't know, does that link in with the um, the marine park management plans at all or, or should be people... if? you know be writing letters to their ministers saying buy back the gill oh they can certainly write letters to the to the fisheries minister and ask him to buy back those gill licenses um and also next year everyone will have the opportunity to put a submission in for the north kimberley marine park and um yeah right in there we don't want the gill in that area we think that uh, it's a bit unnecessary and it'll be better off without them cool oh well we'll see how you know see what happens in the future yeah Well, I've got this rather bizarre story. Um, oh, the best kind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a professor, Professor Sean Doody. I've done a few uh, research projects with him before. He's a bit of a cane toad expert and a biologist. And he's been doing most of the research in the East Kimberley about the cane toad invasion and looking at what's happening in the ecology. And uh, on his last little trip, he was walking past some finches and all the finches were scolding and chirping and telling him off. And he thought, that's really weird. What's going on there? And he looked in the nest and... There was a goanna eating the finch's eggs, and the finches weren't oh, very happy about it. I see. Yeah. And then he thought, oh, wow, I wonder what would happen. Well, the cane toads come in, and all the goannas are monitors because they're apex predators. They all die off because they all eat the cane toads. So you've got three, three big species there, the water monitors, the Mitchell's water monitor, the Merton's water monitor, and the yellow spotted monitor. And all those species have been halved in numbers because of the cane toads coming in. And all those monitors eat finches' eggs and raid the nests. So he thought, well, we better go and check out the finch population and see what's happening. So he got one of his students to do a, a PhD study on it. And uh, there's a rare, beautiful crimson finch. You might have seen it in the East Kimberley. It's sort of a red blood colour. It's really striking. Oh, I've seen photos of it. It's incredible. Yeah, and they've found that the, the population has multiplied from 55 to 88% over a five-year period. Oh, finch explosion. Finch explosion, because there's less predators to eat their eggs. 
Well, I guess that's good news for the finches, but bad news for those predators that are all choking on cane toads. Yeah. So what it does highlight, the fact, is that when cane toads come in, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It just means a reshaping of the ecosystem and a rebalancing of what actually lives there. In the short term, anyway, over the long term, it might eventually go back to the way it used to be, but it's certainly going to be a different ecosystem after the toads move in. Yeah, I guess I'm a bit sceptical about that. I think any of these reshakings or reshapings are probably a bit traumatic, even for the the species um, that do get a benefit. Um, Yeah. You know, because, for example, maybe we've got the finch finch explosion but then what do these little finches eat maybe there's going to be more competition for particular types of grasses that's just, true. just just for an example yeah, so that's true. um i think these these things are not without a bit of um i guess the chaos going on as the well. moral of the story is the toads upset the apple cart yeah again <laughs> again <laughs> yeah but uh, at least um for now finch populations are winning yeah, we'll have more beautiful finches flying around in the short term anyway Monsters under your bed, your unsound environment, and talking about monsters. Yep, what have we got? We've got the gigantor <laughs> El Nino coming our way. <laughs> They're calling it the Godzilla El Nino. Um, in case anyone doesn't know the El Nino La Nina phenomenon, I always get them around the wrong way. Yeah, How it's just, it just a way of describing a, a, a long-term weather event where all the hot water sloshes from one side of the Pacific back to the other. <laughs> Basically, it's a pretty good explanation. Really. Yeah, it's just all right. A, Which so side is the hot water on at the moment? Is it over here or over there? It's over there. Okay, but it's sloshing around a bit. Uh huh. Strongly, yeah. So they're predicting the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is a United States uh, body, they've just released a map saying that uh, the sea, sea temperatures off the Kimberley coast are expected to go through the roof this summer. And as a result, they're putting the coral reefs off the Kimberley on high alert for bleaching. Oh. Yeah, so Scott Reef, Ashmore, you know, a lot of those reefs off the coast. Um, the last time that happened was back in 98. We had another strong El Nino. Note they only said strong back then. This one's a Godzilla. Oh. <laughs> well, they've upped it from strong to Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit more serious. Is that the technical term? <laughs> yeah. But I thought we had corals that were really amazing and hardy and able to withstand yeah they're the ones right on the coast though Ah, they're the ones right you know up just above derby kind of thing they're like they're used to you know really turbid water and massive tides but further out like two or three hundred k's off the coast you've got normal coral reefs like rolly shoals kind of thing Mm. and back in 98 they had up to 80 percent bleaching in some areas of those reefs so it did an enormous amount of damage and they're predicting this summer little corals could be really bad yeah and they take about 10 years to recover that's what they were saying it takes a long time for these corals to grow back especially from a really strong bleaching event so all we can really hope for is that we have a nice cloudy wet season and that'll stop a lot of the uv rays coming in and stopping a lot of the heat and the bleaching event hopefully won't be too bad but uh yeah um according to noah uh ashmore reef scott reef Maybe the Rollies are in real trouble this summer. Oh, dear. We shall wait and see. Yep. Mm. Well, here's, um, fingers crossed that it won't be too hot and those corals will um, get through it. Yeah, well, it could have a big effect on fish populations in the coast here as well. What, it's got new research now showing that some larvae move 
hundreds and hundreds of k's across the ocean on ocean currents and if you have a massive bleaching event out there and really hot water it could kill a lot of those larvae you might not get recruitment coming into the coast it could alter a lot of things yeah a little bit scary yeah um should we have some music to make ourselves feel better yeah some happy music please 